That is so. so it's, it has been a good snow day. Yeah, that's. So great. now you can unthaw. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know what's funny about the word unthaw, and I know this has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Is <laughs> the word thaw means to? Yeah, that that's the, the word. <laughs> oh, sorry. But no, no, it's funny because I I want to say unthaw because my mom was like, "Can you unthaw, unthaw the chip?" Oh my gosh, that's exactly what we say. <laughs> I Actually, think it's such a southern thing. Unthaw something, you freeze it. Right. right, but that's not what we mean when we say it. So yeah. This is no, why I, I got it. See, this is why the English language is so fascinating Context. and it's constantly evolving. As well as like yeah. irregardless. Right, that's not a word. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but but it's used, so it is. I mean, I wrote it's, it's interesting. I wrote a a paper in school uh, about linguistics and about the English language and um, basically if you know link for a linguist if it communicates yes it works yes there's no right or wrong if somebody understands you, you then, then it works brother. exactly you will not be able to plug in turn on and cop out you will not be able to lose yourself on skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised the revolution will not be televised the revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew to eat hog moths confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. Welcome back to the Dance Union Podcast, where we talk about the grandiose, gratuitous, greater graphic, and um, gradual life of a dance artist my name is jay Bowie, and i'm the gourmet that is melanie <laughs> and this is the, the dance, dance union, union podcast. podcast can we do that one yeah that's all i got oh you can't roll your r's that well wait what you can't roll your r's that well Whatever, Jake. <laughs> I can okay. on a good day. Okay, on a good day. <laughs> yeah, there, there is. Okay. Um, and we are joined today by a very special guest. Please introduce yourself. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Griff Braun. I am the Director of Organizing and Outreach at the American Guild of Musical Artists. Um, I am a former ballet and modern and even tap dancer um and currently also teach ballet at steps um i prefer he him or his pronouns and that's that's me yay welcome welcome happy to be here yay yeah i was a little you're happy to be here so happy to have you here yes Yes, yes. Um, also, for the people yeah, listening... I got a little digital for a second. Yeah, I got, <laughs> got a little digital. So that's a good signifier for the people who are listening that we are actually um, having this conversation via Skype. Melanie and I are in the studio and Griff is in uh, or here via Skype, which is actually pretty cool because um, we've had some Skype episodes in the past that were not so successful. Um, or no, let's say that they were successful and for other reasons. But what is the major success today is that we have video that is very um, helpful as opposed to just audio as we had in the past. So. Can you screenshot that? Can I think I can. I think, I, yeah. It's uh, like Control-Command-Four. Do you know this? Oh, or that. Or that. Oh, I wasn't ready. Okay, I'm going to do this. Ready? Yay! Yay! So, <laughs> listen, so cool. my camera is terrible. I need to upgrade this laptop. I've been meaning to... I went to the Apple Store on, what was that day, Sunday? Sunday. No, Friday. And yeah. I, I think I can afford a Mac. I think I can afford a MacBook. That's beautiful. I'm still rocking a 2010, and I'm okay with it. Oh, yeah, really? You can yeah, do that? I'm still doing that. Well, Macs, they last. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Oh, Griff, okay. I 
just completely forgot to tell you this, but we're going to transition into the next segment. And before we transition, we ask our guests to provide us a transition step, something that you would do in the studio or in choreography, like a, like a somewhat of a series. And what we will do is we will um, perform these things via video and post them online. Yeah. So we're going to transition to our next segment. And what what if you can give us some steps that we can do? I'm going to take notes. All right. Well, let me let me uh, let me go ballet on you. I appreciate okay. that. Um, yeah, so I, I think a, a good transition to another direction would be contretemps. Oh, okay. Con- listen, I haven't done that in a while. Okay, contretemps. Um, yeah, okay. I would. Can I? You know what it is? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, yeah. I teach a little bit of ballet every once. In, I just haven't gotten to that um, in a while. But I think <laughs> PK arabesque into that, and then chasse, and what's the other contretemps. thing? Contretemps. No, that, I think that's a lot. That's enough. PK arabesque, and then chasse out of it, and t- yeah, that's the transition. Okay, so we're going to contretemps, pique arabesque, and chasse. Into the next section, section. which is? History for for the future. Future, future. All right. Okay, so in the spirit of Mardi Gras, which is happening in this season, and also because I would love to be there, and I'm not. (laughs) So I'm going to talk about another um, cool New Orleans dance fact. Um, So there is a space there called um, Congo Square, and it's in Louis Armstrong Park. And it's a space where slaves and black folks hmm. gathered throughout the 19th century to meet, have open markets, and they did African drumming and dance. And they would just celebrate a variety of things. And they say that this was a very uh, substantial space where the development of jazz happened. And local voodoo practitioners still consider Congo Square to be a spiritual base, and they gather in the, the square for rituals. Yay. So if you get down to NOLA, go visit Congo Square. Yes. And that is That's my... That's a great fact. Yeah, right? Yes, it is. Um, that also... There's... So I was engaging with someone via our Instagram um, comment section about the history of jazz mm-hmm. um, and how erasing the history of jazz for the sake of um, inclusion, meaning like including all races and not being just a black thing was actually something that was steeped in racism. So it just felt very appropriate that you just instinctively brought that in. So hopefully that the person that I engage with online is also listening so that, you know, it it serves us well to know the histories of our dance forms, especially when they are connected to a lot of oppression and marginalization of the right. peoples. And the different places that they were happening. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes. Oh, also, I think um, in Trinidad, they're having a Juve ce- celebration at this moment, like on, on today. So that's and we're enough. looking at snow. And I mean, you yeah. know. But also, that's a great, like, that's part of where um, New Orleans and the Caribbean have a stronger connection than what oh, we in America so understand. We kind of talked about this on the last episode, yeah. too. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Um, yeah, I need to get down to New Orleans. That's the last thing I was going to say. I just need Let to get down know. there. Have you been? I've never been to New Orleans. Can you believe that? I'm from Texas, and I've never been to New Orleans. I've been all over the world, but I've never been to New Orleans. You should definitely see if you can get a trip. What part of Texas are you from? Dallas. Ah, uh, yes. Okay, yeah, you got to go. What I love about it is because I'm from the South, is that it has this beautiful Southern vibe to it where, like, people look you in the eye, and they smile at you, and everyone speaks, and it has such, like, a vibration, like a fun vibration like New York. So, yeah. it, for me, it's, like, the best of both. I get my Southernness, and then I also mm-hmm. get, like, this vivacious, fun nightlife. And it's not just in um, 
where, you know, all that nonsense happens. What is it? <laughs> Bourbon Street? It's not Bourbon Street. Yeah. There's so much other rich history and food and music that happens there. It is... Where all that nonsense happens, yes. Yeah. I mean, I did that one well, year. It's, it's one of those places that's really distinct. It has its own oh, thing. And it's such a... It's a melting pot of so many cultures, but it's a distinct place. Yes. Yeah. And then when you want to, you know, get a liquid or a libation, you can just put it in a plastic cup and walk around the city. And no one bothers you. And everyone acts like, that's well... traveler. Right? That's mm-hmm. <laughs> so I got to go. See, look, I'm just sitting there looking, listening, like, yes, yes. Yeah, so. <laughs> I'm going to be going to Houston next month, so I'm really excited. Um, my mom's family is from Houston, so I'm hoping that some some synergy happens <laughs> when I'm down there. Right. Yeah. Um, okay, so I I want to do – we're going to transition to the main segment, which is us talking about um, – a freelance dance union um, through AGMA and what that looks like and what Please. you are working on, Griff, and um, some of the backstory there. Um, but before we get into that, I just realized um, that at least not in a while, but I don't think ever, really talked about um, the meaning and the the decision to name the podcast The Dance Union. And it's very relevant to this conversation. Um, so... I've been dreaming about making a podcast since I first heard a podcast and found out that they weren't just all NPR conversations. So then I started to think this would be a great place to um, initiate some innovative ideas. It would be like um, just a new frontier for the Internet and for communication. So I was really excited to figure out like what I might want to get behind. And at a New Year's Eve party, I met a woman named Caroline Furman who used to dance with, um, uh, what's her name? I know, uh, come on, starts with a G. Oh, my gosh. Andrea Miller, I think she's artistic director. Oh, my gosh. Galeem. She used to dance mm-hmm. with Galeem. Um, Galeem dance. And she, um, we just started talking about what we all need, like all the conversations that we had um, at that moment, like at a New Year's Eve party or like outside of a class or after a studio or out after an audition, basically about like all the all of our woes and all of the, the things that are happening in our dance community that... Um, are both sharing resources and like sharing some grievances that we connect on. And then we realize that a lot of times those conversations don't go further past that one moment. They tend to like stay within the very containment of these people at that moment. So we thought like it would really serve us to let our dance community know as far as we can connect to them and reach them that these conversations aren't just happening in silos and in your particular network, but they're happening and they're shared amongst each other. So then that's where the word union came in. Like we really want to find a sense of connectivity with one another and understand that what one dancer might be going through, a thousand could be going through it as opposed to feeling like you're the only one, which that's a lot of time where um, pain begins to like grow as believing that you're the only one experiencing this pain. Um, we thought to definitely the podcast would be great for that. And then the other part of sharing resources, we were like, we have learned a lot of things in our time um, as dancers and dance makers. And, and there are many people coming up behind us. Caroline is a teacher, I think, at one of the CUNYs um, in, in New York City, more uptown. And she was like, you know, she has a lot of students who would really benefit. So we had an initial target audience for um, college students about transitioning into the life of a professional, quote-unquote, professional dance artist. And um, then we really started to think about, like, we also do not have at this moment a dance union that refl- that, that, that meets many of our community's needs, um, one in which dance unions with, like, AGMA, where 
it's um I know you can correct me if I'm wrong, but Martha Graham, Ailey, um, and ballet companies at this point, which for us has represented like a top echelon of pay and support and, and visibility and dance, among some other things. So we were like, okay, well, if just even naming something the dance union at least puts the idea in the minds of the listeners that what would that look like and what would that what what do we need from it? And we've just been practicing this thing at least at the end of episode by dreaming what does our dance union have. Um, so that's, that's kind of how we got here, and I think this is where we meet really well um, for this conversation, Griff and us at the Dance Union, um, because we talked about galvanizing the last time um, we were together, Griff, at the, at the last focus group. And I feel like we, um, the Dance Union has a lot of access and ability to galvanize a community to needing, uh, understanding what their needs are and, and seeing if a Dance Union for freelance dancers could be that. But we can get to that um, more later, but I know what we're definitely dying to hear now is... But I also want to say something, oh, too, but in saying um, thank you for sharing that lineage, yeah. and also where I'm sort of coming into it, into where I've come, is like I'm currently being sort of courted by a socialist group and they talk a lot about mm. unions mm-hmm. and they talk about the work that goes into them and also the structures, the hierarchies, the resources um, that go into them. So it's really interesting for me to, to come into this conversation, one, yeah. as a performer and being in the dance world and understanding where we are and then also seeing some of the labor that some other working unions are yeah. putting into place for unions that exist and also folks working on creating unions and the work that it takes to actually get those off the ground yeah. and all the, the legalese that comes into it. So yeah. so excited to hear more about um, your perspective of things. Yeah. And if you could, Griff, could you take us through some of the initial conversations or even thoughts that led up to where we are currently at or where you are at um, with AGMA on the conversation about including freelance dancers in the union and representing them? Sure. Um, so by way of just a little bit of background, um, my dance career, my other life uh, in that career and uh, all of those worlds at some point, meaning, um, you know, the largest of ballet companies, as well as mm-hmm. freelancing with friends doing uh, small projects. Um, so I've kind of seen both both sides of things the way uh, and I've been at AGMA for about five years now. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that uh, that this got started was um, Evie Allison, who Mm -hmm. is a freelance dance artist in Chicago um, and a graduate student in Chicago, contacted me because she was writing a piece for Dance Magazine that was asking the question if freelance dancers could form a union or should form a union. And so we had a great conversation that was the basis or part of the basis for that article. And um, I, I expressed that uh, from AGMA's perspective, we we want to be the dance union dancers. Um, acknowledging what you said, Jay, that you know that right now we represent the ballet companies, large, medium, and a few small, mm-hmm. uh, as well as just two or three more contemporary companies. But you know, even those you might call more uptown companies yeah. like Ailey, Ballet Hispanico, mm-hmm. uh, Martha Graham. Um, but so that conversation led to, you know, the question of how, how would that happen? Mm-hmm. Uh, because they're, they're just, you know, as we've talked about there, there's a basic, um, problem with 
typical union representation for a large group of freelance artists. Mm -hmm. And that is simply the fact that there's no single employer mm -hmm. with which to bargain. Yeah. Um, so typically you would have a group of workers in this case, in a dance company that work for one employer most of the time. And, and the bargaining relationship is between the union and that employer, obviously for freelance dancers, they are working all over the place. Um, so that typical relationship doesn't work. And, uh, you know, I said to Evie and I'll, I'll say to you, I don't know the answer to the question, yeah. but we, we thought that, that trying to get a lot of people together and, talk about it was yeah. probably something smart to do. And um, that's how it started. And so the idea initially was let's start some regular, you know, periodic focus groups uh, about freelance dancers, their, their lives and AGMA and unions and how those worlds could, uh, could come together. And let's see what ideas come out of that. And so we've done a couple of those and um, and AGMA is supporting that. AGMA mm -hmm. is is sort of sponsoring it by providing the space, providing the technology to bring people in remotely. Um, when we can afford it, we provide some food for yeah. these meetings. Um, and what has come out since those focus groups is um, smaller groups of the, the people that have come in to have these discussions have formed kind of working groups mm -hmm. that are meeting monthly. And again, AGMA is hosting those meetings, and there's only been one so far. We have yeah. another one tomorrow afternoon. I'll be there. Good. I'm glad to hear. Yeah. And um, so the way, I, the way I describe this in one sentence is AGMA is trying to support freelance dancers in organizing themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and that, I feel like that's mm. important. I think, I think the last thing you need is someone coming from a union and saying, here's what you have to do. I think that the important thing is for the, the community to come together and organize itself. And any concrete steps towards, um, you know, contracts or enforceability or bargaining or all of those things come way down the road. The, yeah. the number one priority is to try to galvanize and have that community organized mm -hmm. because otherwise it's, it's too easy for employers to just pick and choose among dancers that they know will continue to work for free yep. or will, you know, that don't require a contract that mm -hmm. aren't part of that. So the, the goal I think is to, is to try to get everybody in this. And so far the response I think has been great. I mean, every, every meeting that we have, we meet somebody or, or people like you two mm -hmm. who have their own communities and are, are, um, undertaking efforts to reach out even further. It's a conversation that's happening in a lot of places. And, you know, I would love for AGMA to be the, the funnel into which all those conversations come because we, you know, we do have, we do have the expertise of yeah. being a union. If it gets to that point and we have, access to, you know, legal counsel and mm -hmm. things like that. So, uh, but the number one, the number one goal, as I say, is, is for the community to come together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's great. I, cause I was going to ask you in addition to independent artists, um, who are some of the other folks that we should be, um, getting in the room and get organizing around this concept. And so you, you mentioned legal counsel and also would you, um, sort of advise other other disciplines like um, that aren't artists to be in the conversation? Well, right now, I mean, I think 
I think right now it makes sense to focus on freelance dancers. And mm-hmm. I realize I realize okay. that everybody in this world is a, is a hyphenate, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody does five different things. And, you know, Jay, you know, from the conversations we have in these meetings, yeah. that's always part of the conversation. Yeah. But I think usually by the end of the conversation, it's distilled down, focused a little bit more on uh, dancers who are freelancing and working for someone else in some capacity. Um, I, I think it would be smart also to, at some point in this conversation, to have, um, to ha- to consciously have choreographers come in yes. that are, that are um, open to yes. uh, to working this way. Yes, you know, that are open to hiring dancers on a contract with yeah. a you know a set payment yeah. with a set date by which the payment will be made. Yes, because I, I think part of influencing. Uh, the the people who hire freelance dancers is going to be building some momentum with you know with positive actors in yeah. that world mm-hmm. people yeah. that do hire people the right way and yeah. that do treat dancers with some you know a modicum of of respect as workers yeah mm-hmm. I think they're important to have come in you know I'll, so I I've been contacted by many people that are hearing about these conversations through you know, the, the web of, of communities that are involved. Um, and so other organizations are interested in this too. I mean, Hmm. someone contacted me from dance NYC the other day, and I'm going to have a conversation with her. I thought for a moment to invite her to one of our meetings, but I I thought I would try to keep it a little, a little, Mm -hmm. uh, in the community and not bring in other organizations Mm -hmm. yet. Mm -hmm. Um, so it doesn't get too, uh, too spread out. Mm -hmm. Um, but there are, there are a lot of different people having this conversation, I think, that are interested in, in what we're doing here. So it's I think it's exciting. Yeah. I think that was one of the last questions we, um, or last conversations we ended on um, during my focus group meeting was, um, who do we know who are hiring dancers? And, I'm, I'm, and in my mind, I was thinking companies and, and naming as many people who are artistic directors that I'm having similar conversations with um, who would be interested in in maybe going as far as to say we are only going to hire union dance union freelance dancers who are meeting these criteria so if we hire you we would like for you within these days to become a union member in this area um to show that that what that they are trying to put the best best um interest at heart for the, not just the company but the dancers themselves who are coming in and out of the company um and i think i have some people in mind and i'm really interested um after the focus group to bring some information to them and see where they would align because a lot of folks are doing really great, um, doing really great by dancers. I, when I say a lot of folks, I guess I can say specifically, I've experienced a lot of great people who are um, making sure that dancers are number one, being paid on time and in full. Um, and the other one, creating a work environment in which there is no, um, emotional or physical or or spiritual abuse or abuse in any way so i feel like those number two main two things are the ones in which um when we put those questions up online that we're going to get to in just a moment that they um expressed as the main issues and why they feel like they need a union is to is to to have someone to go to if pay is not in full and on time or there's any kind of obstruction of pay and if there's any kind of abuse that's happening who do i go to um so to know that these folks are already doing that and, and thinking about it without the pressure of a union, to have them already on board and, and put their full weight behind it, I think that is another another way of galvanizing the community and getting us really behind it. 
So I think yeah, it, I think so. I think so too. And I, you know, in these conversations that we've had, um, you know, the amount of money that people are paid as freelance dancers is certainly an issue. Yeah. But I, I almost felt, uh, you know, I got the sense that the guarantee of whatever the money is going to be, yeah. the guarantee that it will be paid yeah. and that it will be paid on time. Yeah. And as you said, that the person will be treated, you know, with respect as, yeah. a, as a worker and a human being. Those were almost more, um, uh, more important yeah. than bargaining for better rates. And yeah. I, I think, I think better rates is down the road, Yeah. but, but I think, you know, I think having some kind of enforceable agreement yeah. Uh, it's, is important, whatever the terms are. I yeah. think it's, it's very important so people can plan their lives and, and plan, you know, how they're going to pay their bills. Yeah. Okay, I thought you were going to say something, Melanie. I'm just... <laughs> oh, I mean, I have a couple questions, but um, one I'll ask is, yeah. did, you may have mentioned this, how was the f- focus group sort of uh, mm. chosen and how, you know, how did you find people for the focus group? I actually... I, I took a hands-off approach to that. I um, I let Evie. I didn't let. I asked Evie, mm-hmm. and uh, another friend of mine named David Gonsier, who's a, a freelance artist. You, you might know, um, and I know him because he's done some work at the Metropolitan Opera. Mm-hmm. So he's actually a union member from his work at the Met. But he also dances for Sean Curran, and he does a lot of uh, a lot of other freelance stuff. Um, and so I introduced the two of them, and then asked them if they would populate the focus group and they they ran with it and they you know they've put together um incredibly diverse and Mm -hmm. thoughtful Mm -hmm. groups of people um so far so yeah alex uh has been um has also come in and has been working hard to uh collect all the contact information from everybody and to kind of deal with communications to the group that we've put together so far and each each focus group and each working group uh, meeting that we have adds more people to the you know to the community that, mm-hmm. that we can reach out to. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that that's that was where we um, in our focus group left off. Is like, can we get some some um, work groups going so we can you know really get some strategies going? I'm really excited to be a part of um, what Alex is doing or what Alex is leading and what we'll be doing in these focus groups. Um, but I think it, I think it would be great to start um, jumping into some of the questions that are a part of the focus group that you put together, um, and both like answer them for ourselves. And I'd be really interested to know what other focus groups like. What are some trends that you've noticed from responses to these questions, and then um, share some responses that we've gotten online. Um, so the first question was, what are the greatest challenges you face as a freelance dancer? Um, yeah, so that that question, I mean, that's a big, broad, yeah. you know, pretty straightforward question. And going into each focus group, you know, I have I have ideas of what the answer to that mm-hmm. question probably are, but I still think it's a good it's a good stepping off point to get people talking. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there are a lot of common issues, some yeah. of which we've already touched on. Yeah. Um, my experience so far, and again, we've only had two or three of these, but so far. Issues of um, equity and inclusion yes. and diversity tend to come out first, yeah. and then at some point it, it tends to shift to the more concrete, where somebody in the room will will say, "Yes, all that's important, but I, I got to get paid, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I got to know, you know, I need to know when I'm going to get paid, and I need yes. to know if." Uh, 
um, you know, if I can afford to take this job or not. Um, and so those more concrete issues of predictability mm -hmm. uh, and enforcement of whatever agreement you come up with, those, yeah. those are primary issues. But, uh, you know, a lot of interesting things have, have come up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Melody, you have some things? I guess my biggest issue is um, managing the ebbs and flows of the career, right? So when you have the lulls, making sure that you have enough financial support to, to sustain you for when you have those busy moments. I think it's both a financial and an emotional management that mm. has to take place. Um, and, and sort of understanding that. So that would be my biggest issue. I wanted to yeah, that that's was talked about, I remember, at the last one. And I had actually brought um, a friend of mine who works at the Actors Fund who sat in on the meeting. And the Actors Fund is a great resource mm -hmm. for for that kind of thing, for filling in, um, you know, filling in dry periods, you might yes. say, yes. Between, mm -hmm. between dance gigs. And also uh, in creating sort of parallel related uh, careers that can help support you through yes. those, you know, those gaps and also can perhaps lead to other careers when, you know, when performing is over, if yeah. it's ever over. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a great resource. It is. It is. Um, along with that, there was, um, there were some models that were shared with us. And I think the questions that we asked were spread really, really far and wide. So some people came back to either my personal Instagram page or to the dance union page and shared some models of um, not necessarily unions, but some some institutional support for freelance dancers. And uh, I have a friend who I'm going to assume it's Sweden. I'm going to, yeah, it's, I'm assuming it's Sweden. She's a um, dancer friend of mine, and she let me know that there is an organization in Sweden that is um, called the Dance Alliance, which employs freelance artists in between contracts, meaning you get a monthly salary, there is um, free, pers uh, not personal training, free um, physical therapy, um, there's an injury prevention or, or injury prevention visits. You get a gym card, um, and most of what you may need to stay, you know, in, 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 in a bodily practice as a dancer, not just getting paid. Um, there's also daily professional dance classes as well as free workshops. And how the system is set up is that you're simple, you're more considered a, um, an employee of the Dance Alliance, and you get these benefits. And then when you get a freelance job, you essentially, you essentially take a temporary leave away from the Dance Alliance for that job. And then when that job finishes, you go back to being the employee of the Dance Alliance. And that also helps for many dance artists who, um, especially in America, when we have like the tax thing, to be able to prove a certain kind of income, a certain kind of steady or regular income there, as well as, um, what other things she said? Um, oh, and um, the other thing is that it's paid for by the state or it's paid for by the government of Sweden. That was going to be my next question. Well, that's Sweden yeah, also. I mean, yeah. That's, yeah. That's right. Huge, yeah, what, huge what difference. The, like, I was like, what is the buy-in? Like, who's how the, much? Who's the buy-in? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this, well, just, just, uh, just coincidentally, I lived in Sweden for mm -hmm. two years when I was 19 and 20 years old. I was in the Royal Swedish Ballet. Mm -hmm. So when you were saying that, I was like, yeah, that, that sounds like Scandinavia to me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that that was that that for me was like really mind blowing because I just didn't think anywhere that that thing was happening. Oh my um, god, Europe Europe take care takes care of their artists. Yeah, they do. They do. They really take care of the artists. And I think, um, I mean, there's just an idea because you never know who can who actually can implement this thing. I, we we get a lot of our funding for the arts through private donations overall. Um, so I think there that model can be replicated through private donations. Um, 
in in great ways. There, you know, there's huge foundations all over the place. We're giving money places and doing things like that, really altruistic kind of things like that. Um, so I think there there could be. I'm just saying possibility. It's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, that such a thing can happen here in the United States, even without or with minimal funding from our actual government. But that was huge. So, like, dancers in Sweden, the 70, dan- 70 or so dancers who are part of the Dance Alliance, that is amazing. And I'm really happy that it exists somewhere. So I just wanted yeah. to throw that into the conversation. Yeah, being a freelance artist, freelance dancer, a real career. It, it, it's acknowledging that that's a, a worthwhile a worthwhile profession that um, that enhances society, and so they want to support it. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's that's the that's the other big thing um, that I think we have a lot of over a lot of things to do as artists in this country, not just dance artists. That we have a lot of work to do when it comes to making connections with our local politicians and our um, and our federal politicians about. Um, about allocating funds to the arts and preserving the arts that is that is supported by the government and not just supported by privatized donations and incentives in that way. Because the model in which that we're using in this country in, in which we're like, okay, if you make a lot of money, you can get tax breaks by donating to the arts and all these other places, is one that leaves a lot of loopholes for corruption. That's where the Trump's foundation or um, nonprofit is under fire at this moment because a lot of folks will just put their money into their own nonprofit and put that money back into their pocket. So... It doesn't. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. It's a model that needs to be fixed, and I, and I I feel hopeful based on how things have been changing um, with our current congressional, uh, specific, specifically the House. Um, who's in I'm the glad you're hopeful. I mean, I'm I stay. You know, I stay right hopeful. Now. I stay hopeful. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> um, a lot would have to shift. A lot, definitely. And especially right now, we're dealing with this huge because of the huge tax cuts mm-hmm. to the wealthy. Um, there's going to be so much less money available to um, arts and culture this year. And so already they're they're talking about asking organizations to cut their funding. And, yep. you know, usually arts is what goes first. Yes. And that's going to mean some people's jobs and X, Y, Z. So, Well, and they came after arts funding last year or yep. two years ago. And, you know, that is a place where the, the unions and, and many of our employers uh, acted collectively and went to D.C. And, yeah. and lobbied and, you know, were able to at least maintain the status quo with arts funding. Great. I mean, going forward, I, you know, I'm not terribly hopeful either, but the, you know, the one, at least one hopeful thing I think is that, um, it's, it's related to this, is that the response to the the constant barrage of, you uh, you know, norm breaking, mm-hmm. if not law breaking insanity that's coming out of government these days is that people are finally shifting back and realizing that collective action, that grassroots mm-hmm. action is the only way to make uh, the kind of substantive change that that will not only need to have thriving arts, but that will need to have drinkable water. Yeah. Um, and right so, you know, co- collective action is is coming back. Yeah. And that's, you know, that I, I couldn't be more excited as a person who's a union person. Mm-hmm. I couldn't be more excited about that idea. And I think this is, you know, within our world, the freelance world, this is our this is our version of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is getting yeah. this community together. And, and it's to it's to help support itself and yes. to make sure that workers are treated well, but it could be used for a lot of things. Yeah. 
Do you have another question, Jeff? Yeah, but before going to the next question, I just wanted to share that um, along with the main two things, I think, as we mentioned and I've learned, is that pay, the conversations around pay are huge and conversations around um, disrespect and, and lack of respect or dehumanizing things that's happening in the studio. But I just wanted to name some things explicitly is that we are, um, I don't know if, I don't, mm, we are now starting to have more conversations about um, trans and gender non-conforming artists um, who are often freelance artists, as well as people who are coming from really marginalized and oppressed um, identities and communities that are engaging in dance specifically. And our conversations about like having gendered auditions and saying like men to the men today, women today, and it's like we're about the gender non-conforming folks. All that, all the conversations about that are are really becoming to be at closer to the forefront, as I'm seeing and. And then the other thing along with that is that there, the sexual harassment that we've been experiencing and um, have been reporting on in dance and, you know, the New York City Ballet specifically as well as, um, and it's been ballet focused, but I, I argue to say that that is due in part because ballet is closer to mainstream culture than like modern dance, avant-garde dance, you know, and, and performance arts. So those kind of conversations are, are happening and we are having like the dance symposium and other kind of conversations that have been happening, studies projects. And the biggest thing that I'm noticing that's coming up is people are, like, are wondering who do we go to and where can we go to? And when I asked the question, some folks were asking if the union could be such a place to go and report some abuse that is happening um, specifically in those areas or report areas in which working conditions are just not um, safe for them, but specifically with sexual harassment and being a trans or gender nonconforming dance artist? Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, there, there's a lot there. Um, the union and our union, as well as, as all performing arts mm -hmm. unions, are adjusting and trying to find our, our place mm -hmm. in what's happening now. Um, there, there are so many uh, um, long-neglected communities yeah. that are starting to have a voice, which is wonderful. Uh, but there, there are issues of, you know, longstanding harassment and frankly, male domination, yeah. um, in ballet, certainly. Um, and the union has a role in, um, an important role in protecting, uh, in protecting our members, protecting the artists that are part of the union, mm -hmm. uh, from, uh, harassment and bullying and um, sexual harassment. Yeah. Uh, our contracts with our signatory companies uh, all have at least some language that prohibits all forms of discrimination, mm -hmm. and sexual harassment is a form of sex discrimination mm -hmm. uh, legally. Um, and many of our contracts also refer specifically to sexual harassment. Uh, in the last, you know, since Harvey Weinstein, we have been. Um, yeah. Expanding, yeah. Uh, expanding our reach in that area and um, demanding to see employers' policies about harassment. And uh, we have a, um, an anonymous uh, hotline and email that people can, uh, that people can write into uh, if, they, if they want to be able to report something, but they're not comfortable going to HR at yeah. their employer. Uh, because it's, you know, it's difficult. The most direct way to deal with an instance of sexual harassment is to report it directly to the employer through mm -hmm. their HR. But as we know, you know, even 
some bigger dance companies don't really have a fully yeah. uh, fleshed out HR department, and yeah. it's not it's not necessarily separated from the rest of the management yeah. in a meaningful way. And so people are not comfortable, not always comfortable going in and reporting that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so the union is a resource for them. Um, there, but there are a lot of resources, uh, but, but we, you know, we encourage them to, to look at AGMA as a resource if they find themselves in that kind of situation. And then we can help them report it to the employer. If that's the way we need to go, we can, direct them to counseling if they mm-hmm. need it, um, often through the Actors Fund as yeah. well. They have a robust counseling program there with um, many social workers to help specifically with those issues. Um, and there are resources through the City Department of Human Rights and uh, and other places. But yeah. the unions are definitely trying to insert themselves in this situation and make sure that that workers know that they have a, you know, they have a resource behind them yes. in their union. And for the Actors Fund, I know we mentioned them a few times at this point, and I'm realizing that we definitely need to have them on the podcast, um, is that they they offer a lot of resources that every dance artist can can engage with at this moment. Um, don't don't need a union at this moment. You can just go down and speak with them. Um, they've been in existence for a long time. They've been serving the community. And I'm actually realizing that just in my own life that I have been underutilizing them. <laughs> and I haven't. I live in the building. Yeah. <laughs> so we are on the... <laughs> This is the spectrum right here, all right? <laughs> and I need yeah. more of us to go from not utilizing them and just know, or going from maybe not even knowing them and knowing that they're there and showing up to some of their, um, their seminars, I guess they would be considered. Oh, yeah. They have amazing ones like financial wellness. Yeah. Job yeah, prep, all kinds so of much. Yeah. So career uh, counseling, and right? All, all kinds of things. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I'll say, you know, Agma, and I think I mentioned this at the last uh, focus group, but mm-hmm. um, something that that I started. Uh, it's been a couple of years now. Um, I'm on a uh, an advisory council at mm-hmm. the Actors Fund for their uh, dancers resource group, and um, when career transition for dancers mm-hmm. uh, came into the Actors Fund and came under the umbrella of the Actors Fund. The Actors Fund wanted to make a real effort to reach out to dance communities. And so I, um, Christopher Bloodworth and I went out on the road together um, to many cities around the country and put together these meetings of dance communities. Um, And, you know, I, I was there representing AGMA, but also just as a dancer kind of serving to introduce the Actors Fund into dance communities. So, I mean, we were we've been all over the country with these from mm-hmm. Portland and San Francisco to Texas and uh, Atlanta and DC and Ohio and all over the place. Yeah. They, um, they have like a resource, right? That lists the different uh, salary and incomes now, right? That people have once they transition out. Am I making this up? Probably. I don't know about that. I'll do some digging. I, I just remember seeing something that says, here's what certain dance artists ma- artists make in Colorado versus what they make in Minnesota. Oh, maybe that's a Dance USA. Never the I mind. Would, yeah. <laughs> that's USA. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Oh, broke up. Yeah, no, I, but we got it. Yeah, yeah this is Dance, dance USA. USA. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, the other question that we had um, was... What do, and I'm paraphrasing because I'm I don't really have it directly in front of me. Let me just stall for another second. Three, two, and I'm here. How would you define what a labor union is and what it does? And I'm so glad that this question was in there because I also know 
that many of, I'm going to say my generation, those of us who were born in the 90s, grew up not hearing much about unions because I think that was, uh, we were coming in, growing up in the age of the decline of unions where unions were actually being disbanded and, and essentially attacked and destroyed. So that idea of like what a union is, it may be really foreign to folks who may not have that at-home conversation about unions because I had them at home with my parents. My mom was in a nurse's union. Yeah. So, yeah, um, can you yeah, can tell uh, us a little bit more? Well, I mean, it, oh, sure. Uh, so, I mean, it, at its at its basic level, uh, a labor union is just a group of workers that get together to collectively advocate mm -hmm. to improve their lives. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there, there are a lot of ways to define, and we can talk about specifically what unions have traditionally done. Um, but the, the broader, to me, the broader definition of a labor union is just the collective struggle of workers. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But if we get, you know, getting into the, the specifics of what a, a labor union typically does, collective bargaining is, is primary. And that's, you know, that's essentially a group of workers that are negotiating the terms and conditions of their employment. Um, and what comes out of that is a collective bargaining agreement, a, a contract that, uh, that specifies, you know, for dancers, it specifies everything from um, wages and benefits to, you know, limits on how many hours can be worked in yeah. a day, how many hours can be worked in a week, how many shows can be done in a week, mm. uh, to health and safety regulations about sprung floors and uh, temperature, you know, a temperature range within which one can safely work. Um, uh, so, you know, there are very specific terms to dancers, and then there are more uh, common terms about, you know, wages and guaranteed work weeks. And, and that's, you know, that's probably the most important thing that the collective bargaining agreements that we have with dance companies provide is guaranteed work. Yeah. So the contract that a dancer would sign is only one year at a time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, within that one year, our dance companies, none of our dance companies work 52 weeks a year, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, they're guaranteed 35 to 45 weeks of work in yeah. a year. And once they sign that, that money for those weeks is guaranteed. And yeah. that's called pay. It's a pay or play contract. Mm. Uh, and that's probably the most important protection of all yeah. um, is because they, they know that they will receive this. They cannot be just let go on a whim mm -hmm. um, you know, from one week to the next. Amazing. Griff, yeah. I have a question. I'm from, you know, North Carolina and growing up, I thought that unions were illegal. So, well, I'll tell you, North Carolina is the, I think it's the lowest percentage of union workers in, in all 50 states is North Carolina. Great. So the propaganda was real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, my family transitioned from um, California to Arizona and Arizona is a right to work state, which that by definition made a lot of what we would consider a union relatively illegal. And I don't know if illegal would be the best term to say, but probably would make it um, very highly frowned upon and all these other kind of things that make it pretty much saying like if you, cause my mom well, again is a nurse. So she, when we moved to California, moved to Arizona, she was like, where's the nurses union? And all the nurses were like, Oh sweetie, that we don't do that here. And if you keep talking about it, you won't find a job. Right. Like I used to hear things like that. Wow. Okay. Well, let me, 
stop me if I go on too long. <laughs> yeah. um, so if you go back in, in labor history to the late 19th century, so, mm-hmm. you know, 1890s, um, there were laws passed, antitrust laws. You mm-hmm. probably read about the Sherman antitrust mm-hmm. law. Uh, and there were two or three others in there. And at that time, you know, like the the Teddy Roosevelt period, the progressive period, the start of the progressive period, they were really focused on busting monopolies, mm-hmm. making sure that corporate monopolies didn't take over and kill competition and, mm-hmm. you know, wreck people's lives. So they passed antitrust laws. Interestingly, those antitrust laws were almost never used to bust monopolies. What mm. they were used for was to define labor unions as illegal conspiracies. Mm. Damn. And so for a long time, labor unions were considered illegal. Yeah. And there was a lot, you know, there was a lot of, um, there were a lot of strikes. If you think about like the Pullman railroad strikes mm-hmm. or the, the coal mine strikes, steel strikes, uh, in the early 20th, late 19th, early 20th centuries. Um, and there was a lot of violence and uh, injunctions were passed and, you know, uh, militias came in to remove striking workers. And so in the 1930s, in the, in the Great Depression, during the Great Depression, Roosevelt was finally arrived through law, actually encouraged unions. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the National Labor Relations Act was passed that mm-hmm. encouraged workers to get together because there was so much violence yeah. and so much loss of productivity that they wanted to encourage people to join unions. So forming unions is actually supported by federal law. Mm-hmm. So it's not illegal anywhere in the yeah. United States to form a union. But there are these, you know, ever since that law was passed in the 30s to support unions, mm-hmm. starting in the 40s, they started corporate America started yeah. chipping away at those laws, yeah. and that really that really ramped up after 1980. Mm. And so, when you talk about growing up in the 90s, that you yeah. know you were in the in the, the wake of the Reagan revolution, mm-hmm. which was you know, which was in large part to to bust unions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that went to work laws and those are still those are still prominent and right to work as you know is is a euphemism mm-hmm. uh, what it really means is that you don't have to join the union and pay dues to the union that represents you mm-hmm. so if you are a, a nurse like your mom and you worked in a unionized workplace mm-hmm. in a right to work state the union would represent you no matter what mm-hmm. but you don't have to pay dues to the union mm-hmm. and so it's it's a way. It's a method to um, to defund unions because yeah. they're counting uh, they're counting on people's individual. Um, I don't want to say selfishness, but selfishness. Yeah. Yeah. To, yeah. Uh, you know, to drive them to not pay into this organization that represents them. Yeah. That would then so dry it puts out. A, mm-hmm. right. So it puts the burden on on us as a union and, and we have you know we have companies in right to work states we have dance companies in right yeah. to work states houston ballet mm-hmm. um, ballet west in salt lake city tulsa ballet theater yeah. in oklahoma and in those places there are sometimes dancers that just say well if i don't have to pay i'm not going to pay mm-hmm. but we still have to represent them the mm-hmm. way we would any paying union member yeah um so you know, the onus is on the unions then to make sure that its members know, you know, why they're in the union yeah. and why it's important 
to support it and to participate in it. And, you know, that's something that AGMA is, is focusing on right now um, quite a bit. Yeah. I have a question about the relationship between unions and lobbyists. And I'm bringing that up because um, recently Governor Cuomo just announced an aggressive lobbying reform proposal, um, which lowers the threshold in which um, people have to register to be be lobbyists to $500, I think before it was 5000 mm. So if you donate over $500, then you have to register as a lobbyist. So I'm curious of, like, what is the relationship um, between lobbyists and, like, say, unions? Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. I, you know, at AGMA, anyway, we don't... AGMA doesn't directly lobby... Mm -hmm. At all. I mean, we, we don't have, you know, we're a fairly small union. We're about 7,000 members uh, nationally. But what we do do is we, um, we act collectively as well with other performing arts unions. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, as I was saying, for uh, supporting arts funding, yeah. um, we, you know, we worked with them and our executive director went to D.C. And, and I'm not sure who the... Um, what the connection was in terms of a, a lobbyist that, you know, that made the connection between that, between our community mm -hmm. and government. Mm -hmm. I think it might have been through the uh, local 802, the uh, musicians union, mm -hmm. musicians local, um, or the American Federation of Musicians, which is the, the international. Um, it might have been through their political director. Um, but in, in a, a broader sense, unions are big groups of people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. you know, big groups of people uh, have some uh, power to lobby for things yeah. because they represent votes. Yeah. And, you know, the, the funny thing is, it's not funny, it's tragic, but you'll often hear uh, conservatives refer to unions as having this outsized influence over... Mm politics. And it, it's almost comical if you ever look at something that compares the resources of yeah. unions to the resources of corporations. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's almost comical. Yeah. Uh, but, but unions do, you know, the, and especially bigger unions, the Teamsters or, you know, huge international unions, they, they do lobby and they do support and endorse political candidates. And, um, and there's a reason for that. Certain political candidates support workers and, Certain political candidates pretend to support workers. Mm -hmm. Other political candidates don't even pretend. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, was there anything else I had about the... It's so labor? complex. It is so... I think it, it for the listeners listening, um, a labor union is, is something that um, may be really new to your ears. And I encourage everyone, since we are building what could essentially, could essentially be a freelance dancers union um, is to research some history about what what unions have done in the past. I think you sort of taken us like through that walk through history, but I would like for um, for folks to do it on their own as well. Like I really want to encourage folks to to jump into this information um, through their own volition because I think along with us like having this podcast and having this conversation another thing that's really important is for people to find their own individual desire and need and or calling for this um and i've been thinking a lot about that word galvanize um a griff since you last said it when i was in the last focus group is you know i have i feel like i have a very 
clear purpose and reason for doing that, and it, it exists within this podcast as like a love letter to the dance community um, by trying to you know get as many folks well informed and and understanding what resources they have and and what protections that they have if they may not know that themselves. Um, so that falls right in line with my purpose, but I know everyone else will have a different thing because everybody else runs a dance union podcast. <laughs> yeah. I would also say, too, it's, it's so good to, to hear and be in conversation with groups of people because, like I said, I'm, I'm still fighting against this thing or understanding that unions are illegal mm-hmm. and not understanding where that sort of uh, false, not false history, but where that history comes from yeah. or, like, what type of opposition one may face when trying to start a union or being a part of a union. Yeah. Um, do we have time to dive into that to talk about some of the opposition one might face or just to be aware? Yeah, no, I, th- I think I think we definitely should because um, one of the things, this, so the first time I heard about a dance union was um, auditioning for a company in Portland, Oregon with, um, that's where I met Wendell, um, my roommate and a great coll- a longtime collaborator of mine. And we, um, when when I first heard it, it was artistic directors and choreographers in, from Chicago and with a relationship to Chicago completely um, denouncing the idea of a union for dancers, specifically for freelance dancers, mm-hmm. and saying that, um, you know, they then the company will have to spend too much money, they already don't have enough budget. Mm-hmm. Um, then, like, what... It, then, I, but it actually... That 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 right there is one in which I can have a... I felt as though I personally can have a conversation with someone and, like, yeah, let's talk about what that means for you to have to shell out more money, you know, for rehearsals and for performance pay and things like that. That's a real thing. Um, but it really centered around this, like, well... That it would be ridiculous for a dancer to say, "Well, we've only I can only rehearse for five hours a day." So as soon as that four fifty nine hits, they're already starting to pack up their bag for five p.m. to go home. And what if I have more ideas? And there's like this whole creative process thing where it's like <laughs> valuing this idea of a creative process over the the needs and the the livelihood and wellness of a, of a dance of a human, right? So I think that sentiment was like so very clearly stated in that room. Maybe because they didn't value the people that were in the room, they didn't know who I was at the time. And I didn't, I didn't really know who I was at the time either. But um, I know that that sentiment is also shared very widely um, through a lot of choreographers and a lot of um, artistic directors. Maybe not even, maybe they not even be aware of it, They but they might be doing it because of the culture of dance has been set up. They adopted it. Mm-hmm. They just adopted it, in which you have long rehearsals and you just sometimes add a few hours in because you have to get this idea out and you exhaust the people who are physically using a lot of their or physically doing the labor for this for your quote-unquote creative genius so i feel like that's a lot of opposition right there well i mean you yeah you said a mouthful uh you you said a lot of the things i was uh was thinking um well where to start so first of all just because a person says they're going to stop at five o'clock doesn't mean that you can't create work. Yeah, uh, there there are plenty of <laughs> there are plenty of people out there creating all kinds of work, artistic or otherwise, mm-hmm. with an understanding that workers are human beings right. and they have a life and they need to uh, take care of themselves. Yeah. Um, so that's a that's a false uh, you know that's that's a false um, choice mm-hmm. uh, that that you're asked to make there. I, I do agree that there, you know, that as dancers, we've, you know, we've grown up with a certain culture and things have been done to us or with us. Um, and very often 
we then pass those along to the next generation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've never been a huge fan of, of anybody that says, well, that's the way I did it, or that's yes. what happened to me. Well, that, yes. that doesn't necessarily mean it was good. Yes. If it happened to you and it was good and treated you respectfully, great. Yeah. If it happened to you and it was terrible, then, then why do it to somebody else? Yes. Um, so, but in terms of opposition to unions, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head and, and that's, that's going to be the people that hire the dancers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not always the case. I mm-hmm. mean, sometimes, you know, sometimes there are employers that are more amenable to it than others. Um, something that might be worth talking about is just the process, mm-hmm. the traditional process of unionizing. And, and one, you know, Melanie, you, you've said a couple of times that you grew up with an idea that unions were illegal. It's important for people to know that groups of workers can form a union and the boss doesn't have a vote. Yeah. It's all about the workers. Mm -hmm. But what the boss can do is scare the workers. Mm -hmm. The boss can say, you know, the union's a terrible idea. The boss can try to start firing the workers Mm -hmm. who are involved in trying to unionize, although that is illegal. And, you know, if there's an existing union supporting the organizing campaign, they Mm -hmm. can, they can, you know, act on behalf of the person that was fired and try to get them reinstated and get their back wages. But I mean, that that's who opposes it is the um, is the employer. Mm-hmm. And it's very um, the employer often will say those same things you said, which is we can't have a you know, we can't have a union here because it will cost us too much money. Um, but the truth is, it may cost you more money, but everything is bargained. So mm-hmm. so what what unionizing gets you first and foremost is a voice yes. in your workplace. Yes. And, you know, that's what many employers don't want workers to have mm-hmm. as a voice in their workplace, right? The workplace is typically the most, you know, anti-democratic, yep. you know, place in the world. Mm-hmm. Having a union levels the playing field a little bit um, and allows the workers to have a voice yes. in what they're doing and the terms under which they do it. So, yeah, so we recently have organized a few dance companies, one of which was Oregon Ballet Theater. And um, there, like other places, the feeling, even among the dancers, or many of the dancers, was, we can't do this. It will cost the company too much money. So the, the first thing that, that we have to do as organizers, as, as, union, as the union, is explain. Just make sure that workers know, you know what we're talking about now that they have the ability to organize, they mm-hmm. have the ability to unionize, and once they do it, what that gives them is the right to bargain. Yeah. We don't we don't come in with a set of salaries that everybody yeah. has to pay. Yeah. That is bargained. Yeah. Um, and so that's something that both employers and unfortunately employees don't always understand. Yeah. Uh, so employers will will often use that as well as, you know, the ability to call all their dancers into a closed door meeting and yeah. uh, talk about what a terrible idea they think it is. And, you know, very often, as you know, you know the kind of work that, that you do is very intimate and can, yes. it's often with your friends and it feels very, um, it feels very casual and very familial. And so very often the employer sees unionizing as a as a slap in the face yeah. because they they always feel like they are the one that's doing everything for the artists they yeah. are the ones that are 
creating a, this incredible environment for them. And now the artists are, you know, slapping in the face uh, to do this. So, but as I say, there are some employers that, you know, once they see that uh, an overwhelming majority of the, of the workers want this, then yeah. they will say, okay. Yeah. You know, and they, they won't force the issue and, uh, you know, force a, a National Labor Relations Board election to take place, exactly. which is what happens if you get a majority of workers that want this. You can um, petition the NLRB to hold an election. Mm. And uh, if more than 50 percent of the workers vote for the union, then it becomes a unionized workplace and you know, bargaining starts for a first contract. Wow. That's wonderful. We have one more question um, from the three questions that you have. And I think this question is really exciting for me um, because, oh, that's not the question. That was my question. Um, how can collective effort improve the lives of freelance dancers? And I think this is one in which the conversation about a union is part of it. But I think overall, um, the, just the idea of collective effort is one that, as we mentioned, we're going back to grassroots efforts and we're going... Um, going essentially back to some practices of getting your community together as opposed to just relying on institutions and structures that were in place before you. So I'm really excited to talk about um, what collective effort can do for us. Yeah, and I think collective action is, you know, that's the question we're trying to, to answer, um, mm -hmm. is collectively can we affect the, the working conditions and the lives of freelance dancers in a, in a positive way. Uh, and like you said, the, you know, a, a union, a labor union is, is one existing structure to mm -hmm. try to do that. But, but we're trying to, we're trying to fit in a, a type of worker into that structure yeah. that doesn't, uh, isn't readily, um, you know, intended for it. Yeah. And so, I, th I think the the unions uh, the union has to adapt. Yeah. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. and so we're trying to figure out how to how to do that. Uh, so, you know, answering that question, I, I'm not sure I can do. There are, yeah. there are a lot of ideas out there about, um, you know, certainly some kind of portable contract. Uh, you know, whose whose terms would be enforceable by the union? I think that would be valuable. Um, but again, I always I always revert back to the the real mission, which is organizing, because you can, we can't take that step unless mm -hmm. we've got a great critical mass of the yes. community behind it, uh, because it's it's just too easy to um, to look at five or ten dancers that yeah. are telling you they want you to sign this contract and go. Well, I've got these fifty dancers mm -hmm. over here that with no contract, yep. and they'll do it for no money either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or no thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think I think we have to be, my opinion, but I think we have to be cautious not to, um, to put the cart before the horse, mm -hmm. so to speak. I, I think we need to really feel community and to demonstrate community. And I don't know how we demonstrate it, but there yeah. are certainly ideas. I think we need to demonstrate that this is a thing, that this is a this is an entity. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, if Agma's support can help that, then good. Yeah. But whatever the case, it needs to it needs to be a, a real entity. Yeah. Um, 
and employers, whoever they may be, a company, a choreographer, a museum, whatever it might be, they, they need to sense that too. And they yes. need to know that when, when dancers come to them and they say, we, we need this, yes. that, that they need to respond to that. And if they don't, they're not necessarily going to have 50 other dancers that'll take mm -hmm. the job. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, again, that gets back to uh, organizing. One of the, the this is a very specific and very niche practice, but I just want to share this because this this could be implemented as well about taking. I think for us specifically taking dance jobs without pay. I think some people, some dancers, especially fresh dancers into the in the world, um, may assume that you take a lot of gigs without pay to uh, eventually in the future get more pay. And unfortunately, that there's no like direct correlation that it works. I can say once <laughs> I got my degree, I looked at everybody I was dancing with. It's like, I'm no longer dancing for free. I have a degree now, so you're going to pay me. That's exactly. <laughs> like, and, I've, and I haven't had that problem. But... Um, but in, in acting, and specifically, uh, Gabrielle Union was on uh, Variety, I think, the Variety Magazine conversation talking about um, pay inequality for um, black women in, in, in the acting field. And she basically said since a lot of them are showing up for the same roles and for the same auditions and the same, like, essential go-sees and being presented with very similar um, scripts is that once actor A is offered uh, a role and the pay is too low and then that, that those people go to the next person what this what this organization doesn't know is that all the way down the line of the women that you're going to contact with they're already agreed that you initiated this role or you, you initially wanted this actress for this role and we're they're all collective in saying that we're going to make sure she gets the role by denying that role when you offer us a lower pay and say like Actually, I'm actually going to I'm going to demand more than what actress A says. Say it's Jada Pinkett Smith. I'm Gabriel. You asked me. I actually want a hundred thousand dollars more than what Jada Pinkett said. Without even saying that's what was happening. So by the time you hit your rock bottom of the list, you have to go back to the initial person and be like, okay, what you're asking for is really reasonable because everyone else is asking for more. That was a few. Um, Gabriel Union was saying that that was working for them um, in their contract negotiations for those roles, and I'm and I'm thinking now that just reminding dancers that you do not have to take um, a role for free and and saying that this is what this actually you deserve from this and this is how you can go in and say this is what you need um, is a, I think like it's a, it could be a great practice of collective effort as we are moving to you know some more some probably better structures it's interesting I'm also yeah that's a that's a great story and I thought I'm sorry to interrupt you um, Melanie I thought I thought what you were gonna say mm -hmm was that when actress A turned down the job, mm -hmm. that that initiated a sort of race to the bottom with the other actresses where they each were willing to take less than the next oh, one. Oh. It's, I, I'm thrilled that yeah. it was the opposite of that. Yeah. That, that they were saying would not take mm -hmm. and push where it should be. That, that's great. And, and, you know, that that model on the larger scale would be wonderful to yeah. achieve with freelance dancers if, you know, if they wouldn't undercut each other. Yeah. And I think a lot of times they don't know they're undercutting right. each other. But, uh, and that, again, that's, that's part of the organizing effort too, mm -hmm. is to, is to start, is to start telling each other what you're being paid. Yes. Because yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's how we've been kept down a long time. Uh -huh. Not we, but just people, workers mm -hmm. in general, it's, it's become taboo to yes. talk about what you're earning next to your coworker. Mm -hmm. Well, if, if 
nobody knows what anybody's making, guess who benefits? Yep. Yep. What were you going to say, Melanie? Yeah. Sorry. No, I was, something I'm sort of coming up against is folks who are dancing and don't consider themselves to be professional dancers. Mm. And so they're doing a lot of work and providing a lot of labor for free. And they're doing performances. There are a lot of rehearsals. But for some reason, they're not treating the situation or themselves as professionals. Mm. Maybe they're considering this a hobby. Mm. I, I'm not sure. And so for me, I'm finding a very difficult place in, in this space as a worker who advocates that dancers be compensated. So I don't know. That's just something I'm thinking about, too. If like you have freelance dancers and then you have people who are actually behaving like freelance dancers, but not considering themselves such and working for free. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's real. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and it would be it, what you said, Jay, earlier about uh, fresh dancers, you know, the dancer mm. right out of high school or right out of college that feels like if they do a certain number of gigs for free, then that will give them the exposure that they need to then, uh, you know, get more lucrative work or, or work that pays at all. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting when you say that there's no, that you don't perceive any correlation there, that you work <laughs> for free now and you're expected to work for free yeah. forever. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's something, that's a message that this, entity, whatever it is, could start to communicate mm -hmm. to its own people, to young people coming into that community. Yeah. Um, you know, among other messages, that would seems to me to be a good message to get out there is yeah. that you're fresh into this, you're excited, you're thrilled to be doing any work, and you may feel like working for free is a is a on ramp for you, but you know, we can tell you it isn't necessarily and mm -hmm. it doesn't help. It doesn't help everybody. Mm -mm. It sure doesn't. Um, I also really appreciate what you said, Melanie, about the dancers who may not consider themselves professional dancers but doing a lot of dance gigs, a lot of dance work performing and labor, essentially. And I think it's real in 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 this formula of a union, I think it'd be really important for us to to find a language to talk about what is a professional dancer or what are the roles that a professional dancer would do that deserves compensation versus mm -hmm. one in which someone who is doing this for a hobby because in all art forms, people engage in it as a hobby um, right. and aren't looking for pay. And I think those folks, um, I don't know if, I don't know if those folks are necessarily part of this conversation or, or maybe we just let them know that they can be a part of this conversation and let them make the decision whether or not they want to be quote unquote professional. That's good. That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I just didn't think about that. So I, I really, I don't have anything else. I just, <laughs> just realized, like, yeah, there's, there are those, but, but also the perception outside, and like many of our parents are like, why would you take that? Why would you invest so much time in this hobby? And it's like, well, that's classic. I mean, yeah. that's that's classic response, right? When are you going to get a real job? And, yeah, uh, and that you know, that's that's told to artists of of all kinds, uh, mm -hmm. certainly dancer. Uh, hear that uh, a lot. Yeah, um, you know when, when you're going to get a real job. This is really cute, but <laughs> it's know, cute. Let's, let's get serious. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I mean, that's a that's another message to communicate is that this is a real thing. Yeah. Uh, and you know that that doesn't that doesn't that's not unique to freelancers it's either. Not. I mean, many of these questions and problems are 
signatory companies, even the biggest dance companies, yep. uh, the artists in those companies experience that as well. Mm-hmm. And they have a lot more security, certainly, yep. um, than the freelancers do because of the contracts they have with the union. But still, it's there are many of the same issues. It, they may vary by degree, but not necessarily in kind or in type. Yeah. There was, um, I remember the thing I said um, about galvanizing and, and um, talking about collective effort. I think that um, as we are as we are um, still using the model of like training and um, college programs and uh, what do you call those things? Conservatories. That's the word I was trying to get to. Conservatories and other kind of training models for high schools and, and people to get into the arts. I think part of the training and education um, about collective efforts should be talking about these things. This should be a part of the educational packet that one leaves uh, an institution with having conversations about um before the exit, because I know that I was leaving without having any of these conversations. And um, as I continue to talk to folks, so were they. Or you were getting something, it was just the opposite. It was more like, you've got to be the best <laughs> oh, yeah. to get this gig before everybody else. Oh, yeah, right. And then also then we're breeding this, competi- this competitive landscape yeah. Yeah. when it's not. Like, I'm, I'm still telling dancers um, who are, again, green, that... The audition process is not what was sold to you. The audition process is not that you can be anybody off the street and not know anybody walking there, just have a number on and possibly make it into the company or into the gig. Every ninety-nine percent of it is somebody knows somebody on the inside. You were taught by this person. You took a workshop with this person. You are engaging with the company in some way. So it's about building relationships. It's yeah. You people who have gotten these jobs have built a relationship somewhere, somehow, with with a key person in there, not just completely blindly off the street. And people are still engaging with auditions with that same mindset and finding themselves highly disappointed every mm-hmm. time that they're not getting it, especially when they can see that someone who did get it was not performing as well as they were during the audition. And we know that. Like, that person was not physically hitting the step, just to call it like that, um, as well as it could be. But that isn't the only deciding factor as to what goes into finding someone to fit a company. There's a whole lot of, like community synergy um there's some like roles in the future that they may be considered for and like you know there's there's things like that so i think breaking open that and re- and reducing this this energy of competitiveness when it comes to auditions and looking for jobs that i feel like through the education programs that we have can help bring the community back together um and be more collective as opposed to competitive i don't know why i enunciated every I don't, t <laughs> i don't either competitive that was Perfectly enunciated. <laughs> um, no, that you know, at Agma we are looking into doing more along those lines in terms of reaching into uh, conservatories and mm-hmm. um, college programs, schools, uh, to let you know young future dancers, future mm-hmm. professionals know, uh, you know, what it means not just to be good enough technically or artistically to get a job, yeah. but what it means to have a career yes. and what a career looks like in this world. And there, you know, there are different versions of that. Um, yeah. but it's interesting that there are, there is often resistance from institutions mm. to having the union come in and talk. And, and I think that really is a, that's just a cultural or mm. historic thing it's like they don't they don't see that as part of it the mm. union's just this thing that's out there 
And if you happen to get one of those jobs, yeah, you join the union, but it's not anything you need to know anything about. You, you know, mm. you need to, you know, you need to focus on your dancing. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I would say that they, yes, you need to focus on your dancing, but you also need to learn to advocate for yourself yes. and to think collectively and to think how best to improve the situation. But, you know, dancers have uh, typically, you know, trained since they were fairly young and they've been told what to do and how to do it and mm-hmm. when to do it at every moment and, you know, what to look like and mm-hmm. what to wear and um, that they don't look right or mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is. They've been told everything to do from the time they were very young. So uh, it's often hard for dancers to switch to the mindset of, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to advocate for myself and yeah. I'm going to join with others to do that. So I, th- I think getting into those places to um, let them just learn a little bit about, you know, what it means to be in a union and, and how it helps and how it supports the art form. Yeah. Mm. But Griff, I, I think some of the things you mentioned is exactly why uh, institutions don't want you all to come through there is because then you will organize students and teach them how to rally around some of the bullshit that happens uh, right. in universities. In I mean, mm-hmm. the, academically, there's a lot of stuff that goes down that I'm sure if students sort of, you know, united around it, it would stop happening. They don't want that. No. So I, that's a good question then of like how else can you reach college age students um, and educate them about these these opportunities if it's not in the institutional model? Well, you know, look, part of it was this podcast. That's why we were targeting the initial in, in, um, intention was to target uh, college age students. But then also, luckily, um, there was, we have I have a friend who I went to college with who um, is teaching, I think, uh, Champaign, Illinois, uh, Champaign. In Urbana? Yes, thank you. Um, there, and she, for one of her classes, put the podcast on her syllabus for the students to listen to weekly. So there was, like, but again, that that is someone who is very much behind this idea. But that is, you know, that's not just the middle te- middle ground teacher. And I think even further, um, I'm reaching out to my alma mater, Arizona State University, to figure out if we can come in and have some conversations with the student bodies and, and, you know, create relationships there so that it's not just this podcast that students can listen to if they want to, but then we can also be somewhat present in the space and get them to understand what resources and and what um, rights and what bullshit that they don't have to engage with. I think generally that, like, what do you not have to deal with and you mm-hmm. don't have to deal with these things? Mm-hmm. And here's why. Um, right. And it's it's exciting to me that that AGMA is is connecting with this thing that is is brewing in the freelance dance yeah. community too because that will that connection will allow us to get into those universities yeah. through the connections that you you know that you already have. Yeah. Um, so you know somewhere down the road in in my fantasy, if if all the dancers are part of AGMA in in one capacity or another, then we can really then we can saturate. Um, yeah. The, this world and and teach people what you know, what's going on. that's again I keep talking about my fantasies that's another fantasy that's I have is to get all the dancers in yes. all, you know, and, yeah. and to to um, to merge these two at least two worlds of whatever you want to call them union non-union uptown downtown right. ballet modern yeah. whatever it is to get everybody together, we're dancers, we're workers, this is real, and we, you know, together we can, we can make it better in all its different iterations. 
Yeah. So I think the big question that a lot of dancers are asking, either specifically or broadly, is what do they get outside of the support um, and institutional support that we're talking about, like with a union or being able to getting voice and things like that. I think that is one in which um, is viable to a lot, but for some people, what else do they need? I know, I know, but I (laughs) think, listen, I was really, I was taken aback as well, but I asked the question and it gave me their answers. So part of the answers is like, one of the, one of the very specific questions was like, would this help me get more dance gigs? And I was like, I think, yes, <laughs> yes. I think the the initial question is a little short-sighted, but I think the long question is, would being a part of a union jeopardize, as we talked about a little bit earlier, would it jeopardize um, getting jobs? Would you be like, a, have a red letter on your, you know, if you walk in like, I'm a part of a union, would that keep you from getting jobs? So I think that is a valid question, but I think on the other side of the coin is, when you're what are the other benefits from a union that we kind of mentioned in that like dance alliance like will there be discounts on classes because some people are struggling to pay with classes the race classes are skyrocketing will there be um you know discounts to shows like what are those kind of things that we can and not not to say ones that exist now but i'm saying that that's such a long question i Will they be? Will they be? Can we bargain for those things? Exactly. I think because Griff, you brought that up. The whole relationship is a Mm. barter. It Mm. is a conversation. So for someone who's asking, what else can I get from this Mm. opportunity? Part of it is like, what are you asking? What are you bringing to the table? What do you want to be in the conversation? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Well, okay. So there are a few questions in there. Yeah. If you know, will being will being a part of the union jeopardize my ability to get work? It could. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it especially could if we try to roll out something before we're ready. Yes. Yes. If if the two of you went to your next audition or, or whatever and said to whoever, whomever might be hiring you, you have to sign this contract, otherwise I'm not, not working for you, they'd probably say take a hike mm-hmm. because we're not at that point yet. Mm -hmm. Um, so yes, it could, there could be people who look unfavorably on dancers, freelance dancers trying to unionize. Um, I, I would say, so what? All right. Um, but, but I understand the question. Um, in terms of other benefits of being a union member. I mean, you identified some that are already there. There are discounts to things. You can look on the AGMA website Mm -hmm. for an updated list of discounts for AGMA members. Um, AGMA members have access to the AGMA relief fund, which Mm -hmm. is emergency funds. If you find yourself Mm -hmm. in crisis, to union members. And, uh, you know, there, there are things like that, but those aren't the None of those are going to make you want to join the union. They're they're good. Yeah. Um, they're they're excellent, you know, supplements. But the primary thing is the ability to bargain with your employer and, yes. and make your working life better. I mean, I, Melanie, you kind of hit it on the head. I was like, what, you know, what what else do you want? I mean, that's a that's a huge that's a huge difference in yeah. in life when you can bargain to make your your working situation mm. better. Yeah. So. Um, but, but, and, you know, it's a, it brings up an interesting question too about hiring and about 
you know, the union's role in the creation of work. And strictly speaking, uh, you know, I'm not sure that the union has a direct role in the, you know, in the artistic proof or the, the stirring of jobs. But maybe it could. So you're saying I, I don't know what that union, would look like. I mean, you're you're saying the Agma union doesn't have a direct relationship with getting folks jobs. No, not uh, other than you know posting auditions yeah. and you know giving information uh, yeah. and and also if it's an Agma audition, you know there is some uh, there in some cases there's some sort of monitoring of the audition process mm-hmm. just to make sure that it's you know there's nothing crazy going on, um, but. Uh, no, I mean, it's still, you're still an artist trying to, you know, to get hired by a, a director or a choreographer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some some unions, um, trade unions in the past, and, and maybe still uh, have hiring halls mm. where, you know, an employer would come to the hiring hall and there are workers there to hire, union mm. workers that they hire, and, and the the union has a role in kind of doling out work. Um, but I mean, we don't, you know, we don't do anything like that. Yeah. Um, that's sort of a, that's a different, uh, kind of a different model. Um, but you know, some, some unions, uh, like the musicians, local 802, uh, musicians union has rehearsal space, um, practice space mm-hmm. uh, for their members to come in and play. Um, Actors Equity, I believe, has some studio space. Um, I, yeah, I feel like Actors Equity also has like um, a sort of rollout, like a staggered audition process where like union members get to audition first, mm-hmm. things like that. And I think yeah, what, we have that too. Oh, nice. If uh, for for opera, um, primarily opera yeah. auditions, um, uh, you know, we have that situation where the union union members audition first in a separate call, and so that's a benefit of being. Yeah. You know, being a union And member. I think uh, uh, just from after I asked that question and we started talking, I think overall, going back to the bartering thing, we have, once we collectivize, then we have collective power and then we can decide what we need. But first we need to, we need to get together. We need to collect and we need to, and then we need to create lists of what we need. And if what we are saying is that we need to have some way more affordable class taking, then then as a group or as a, as a collection, we can say we will stop taking classes at these places. And then and then you will have to create some kind of discount or really rethink about what the what the class model, what the prices for your classes are like if we all collectively say we are not going to be taking classes at these institutions. I mean, we. That, I think that's the biggest thing for whatever that we may need. First, we need to get together and understand what our collective power is, and and then talk about how we choose to wield it. Um, yeah, because there there are many other things overall that the overall life of a dance artist, specifically in this city and even more freelance, is very. Um, the costs in in many scenarios outweigh outweigh the benefits, um, because sometimes the benefit is is just getting paid and then we look at the amount of hours that we just allotted to this process it's like i didn't make minimum wage on this project um and i have some friends who are telling me like just verbatim they're making six dollars an hour when they look back on what all was required for that project and you know they're asking us was that even worth six dollars yeah 
because of all the things that you have to go through. So yeah, we need to. I, I'm gonna. I think from here on out, I'm gonna just keep talking about. We need to get. We really need to get together and talk about these things and and understand our collective power as opposed to, um, working from a source of working from a space of fear. Where when we are working from this place of fear and, and scarcity and individualism and individualism, yeah, working from those places that are not going to be what sustains us and even sustains you individually as an artist is having that individual scarcity fear-based mindset so we have to really talk about how we can break that and do some actions that change that cool yeah i think i think people also have to recognize when they are being played you know when they are when they're being engaged in a race to the bottom with their fellow artists Mm -hmm. um and that that's important to recognize and you know i mean you, you mentioned thinking as an individual that and that's that's a that's a struggle that any performing arts union deals with all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that the struggle of how to create a collective with a bunch of people who are acting individually much yeah. of the time, because as artists, you, you are an individual and yeah. you, you you're unique and you want to be seen that way and yeah. you want your career to progress and you want to be hired and you want to create work. Um, you as you. Um, it's hard uh, possible and it's you know it's a question the founders of agma talked about if you go back to the Mm -hmm. 1930s and you look at the first couple of you know magazines or newsletters Mm -hmm. that they put out they talk about that exact question you know the, the difficulty of creating the collective when the profession is one of an individual wow oh that's that's a wonderful resource i'm definitely going to look at that because that is my big question right now um, I think this is a great point for us to begin to transition. Um, Griff, if you have anything that you would like the general community of dance artists who are listening to engage with, please let us know what they are and when they um, are happening. I will let you know this episode will be coming out tomorrow, so we can start soon. Wow, great. Okay, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, you know, people can go to our website just if they want. Oh. If they want to look into Agma musicists.org. Um, and Can you we say that are, uh, that's a recently revamped. Yeah, our website is musical artists, plural, mm-hmm. musicalartists.org. Mm-hmm. And uh, our website has recently been redesigned and is is uh, quite user friendly. Yes. Um, and we are we are working at the moment on increasing and improving our social media presence yeah um but you can find us on facebook and twitter and and soon on instagram um i'm hoping so um yeah and you know i i just i'm i'm really hopeful and um inspired by this community uh everybody that is reaching out to talk about this is so genuinely excited and happy that uh, that people are coming together yeah. and that someone's taking an interest in this. Yes. And, uh, so I, I couldn't be happier about this. Yes. Um, I know you said you also teach at Steps. So do you want to let the folks know when you're teaching? Yeah, I teach at Steps. Uh, I teach a ballet class, an intermediate ballet class from 2.30 to 4 p.m. on Saturday afternoons. Awesome. And um, it's, uh, if, it, if it means anything to anybody, it's sort of a Maggie Black type Mm. ballet class uh another name that might be more familiar to the new york mm-hmm. crowd would be christine wright yeah uh, i took her class for a long time so um it's a i think it's a class that is um 
would be valuable for anyone from the classical ballet world, but also the contemporary world. Awesome. Um, so. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Griff. What you got going on now? I don't have anything coming up right now. Yeah, I don't. I don't either, and I'm okay. I'm really, I feel really good about that. I'm not good about it, but oh, I mean, I have some stuff. I just don't feel like talking about it because okay. I did a lot of talking last month for yeah. my fundraiser. Yeah, that's right. So, which also we can, you know, that's yeah. a whole another conversation all about lack person. of sustainability. Woo woo! Yeah, um, yeah. Like I said, I don't really have much. Oh no, I can't. I can't say that. I'm just again going to plug Maria Bauman's show at. Um, Brooklyn Arts Exchange, uh, uh, just called um, Desire, a Sankofa Dream. It'll be presented the first weekend in April, which will also be right after our birthday. Woo woo. Uh, we don't share a birthday. Melanie is March 31st, mine is April 1st, um, just for the listeners. Um, and um, April Fool's Day. Yup, that's me. Who would have thought this fool would be talking about unions and things? I, oh, I told. So I'm letting him digress. Yeah, don't let me do this. Okay, so. Um, <laughs> That's happening. Get your tickets. Um, that'll be found in the links in the bio. I'm also going to put the website for Agma in there as well. So, you know, you can engage there. Show up. There's not many spaces to or not. It's a low capacity for this show. So get your tickets as soon as possible because, you know, it, it will sell up because it's a low capacity. It's really interesting and really interactive. Um, and then we're going to wrap it up with um, my dance union. Has it? Do I do the other things first? Don't no, do is I it just, after? I no, it's my dancing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're gonna do <laughs> we're gonna do my dancing has, and I can start because I I have one. Um, my dance union has. I thought I had it. No, my dance union has um some some just, just some reading that you can get into about all things union. I think there's. There's some resources that the dance union has for everyone to pick up. That was that is what my dance union has. Resources about unions. My dance union has dental. Dental insurance? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Access to dental. Yes. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna go big here and yes. say my dance union has all the dancers in it. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you. Like the most important thing that the union needs, and it's, no one has said it in our like forty some episodes. Yes, <laughs> thank you for bringing it home for us, real <laughs> succinctly. Yeah. Um, thank you for listening to another episode of the Dance Union Podcast. You can listen to us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or iTunes, as well as Spotify now and Google Play Music. Um, you and can, Podcast Addict. And Podcast Addict. Just found out we're also on Podcast <laughs> Addict. If y'all have the app, like, listen, we are on places and getting listens nice. from places I didn't know. Um, you can also email us. We actually have a listener um, email for the first time. Melanie's really happy about that. I am. Um, so we, you can email us at the Dance Union Podcast, all spelled out at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at the Dance Union, as well as Facebook um, at the Dance Union. Engage with us there. Um, yeah, that's basically it. And we're just going to hit a five, six, seven, eight, and we're all going to shout. We're out together. No one's going to leave Jay hanging this time. That was like two episodes ago. Oh, I wonder if this is going to happen. Is there a lag? Uh, we'll try. We'll Griff, try. are you ready? We're gonna. There's going to be a five, six, seven, eight, and then we're going to say we're out. Oh, yeah, it lagged. Okay, sure, go. Okay. Five, six, seven, eight. We, we are, are out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for this episode, Griff. Griff, thank you for being here with us. Uh, this was awesome. And you guys, I'm sure you're going to, but you got to have Evie and uh, yes. David come in sometime. Um, They're coming in in like two weeks. Yeah, Evie's amazing. Yes. (laughs) Great. 
Okay, good. Cool. Thank you so much. This was a real pleasure. This Thanks. was a, this was amazing. Yes. Till next time. Till next time. You have a great rest Til of your day. Okay, you too. Bye. Bye. will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nub. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner because the revolution will not be televised, brother. There will be no pictures of you and Willie Mae pushing that shopping cart down the block on the dead run or trying to slide that color TV into a stolen ambulance. NBC will not be able to predict the winner at 8.32 on report from 29 districts. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of Whitney Young being run out of Harlem on the rail with a brand new process. There will be no slow motion or still lights of Roy Wilkins strolling through Watts in a red, black, and green liberation jumpsuit that he has been saving for just the proper occasion. Green Acres, Beverly Hillbillies, and Hooterville Junction will no longer be so damn relevant, and women will not care if